to Yesterday Today. I'm Jake as usual. This is uh, McLean as usual. You uh, came in a little late today, McLean. Thought I was going to have to record the show without you, bud. Well, Jake, you didn't exactly make it easy for me with this new studio you're renting. I mean, we're right downtown. It's not that hard to find. I mean, we are kind of in a closet. So, it's not much. I plan on building a vast broadcasting empire from this little closet-sized studio. Sure, sure. Apple started in a garage, so why can't the next radio lab start in the broom closet of an abandoned warehouse? It's not a warehouse. It's a regular old office building. Except the landlord's kind of a grumpy dude, so I want to stay away from him. Yeah, uh, a lot of exposed pipes around here. Um, well, we'll put some wallpaper up. It'll be fine. At least we got a window. A window that's been boarded up, yes, but a window. I'll take those down later. It'll be fine. We'll put up a fake plan or something. It'll be, it'll be, just make, McLean, you gotta just have the right attitude about these things. People, it comes, it comes through on the air if you're being negative, you know what I mean? I'm sorry, I'll try to be more positive. Anyway, this is Yesterday Today, the show bringing you sounds from the past. Uh, We have a lineup of radio shows here for you today, but before we do that, I thought it would be nice, thought it'd be a little fun to go into the uh, the history of collecting old-time radio. It's something that I I know quite a bit about because it's been my weird nerdy hobby for a while, and uh, I thought it'd be nice to just go back and look at where it it sort of began, McLean. Back in the 70s, uh, when old-time radio, uh, what we consider old-time radio, sort of ended in the early 60s. I think one of the, the last shows was Suspense and Johnny Dollar. Those were the two still on the air, and they finally gave up the ghost when uh, the budget for the big networks all went over to uh, television. It was the hot new thing, so nobody wanted to produce radio shows anymore, so it just became Top 40. Top 40 music stations. And after about 10 years, people looked around and went, Oh yeah, radio used to be pretty cool, right? Remember when we were kids and like radio was a thing? People started collecting the transcription discs that were made of the old radio shows by the networks. Now these discs were all in, they were in people's personal collections. Uh, The stars of the shows would have the discs stashed away in their attic somewhere, or the the network themselves would have a back storage room full of discs, and people who worked there would sort of just take them. Discs ended up anywhere and everywhere. They kind of just got scattered around. And uh, what, what they would do back then was, some, if someone had a, a transcription disc, they would dub it to a reel-to-reel tape and then make copies off of the tape. So the hobby wasn't it wasn't too big at the time because, you know, not, not a lot of people can afford to just be dubbing reel-to-reel tapes all day long. But that was about the time that uh, shows, uh, nostalgia shows about old-time radio started taking off. I, I'm thinking specifically of uh, Those Were the Days with uh, Chuck Shaden. I think that was one of the first ones where uh, it was just this guy who really liked old-time radio. He remembered that as a kid, so he started playing his collection of recordings of it as a, as a radio show. Ah, uh, yes. Let's look back on this man looking back. I actually do really enjoy going back and listening to early 70s episodes of Those Were the Days because old-time radio was just like... It was 20 years ago at that point, so it was kind of this weird... It's like when people today... Uh, reminisce about the 90s or something. It's quaint in its own little way. But then, McLean, what happened then, this is when the hobby really took off, when cassette tapes were all the rage. I mean, they were invented in the, uh, in the, well, they were invented in the 50s, came into prominence in the 60s, but they were a household item by the 70s. So, by the time cassette tapes were out, people were dubbing stuff off of transcription, this real real tapes, making copies of copies of copies of copies of cassette tapes, and the quality was never that great because... 
by the time you got a cassette tape of a disc, it would probably be like a fifth or sixth generation copy. Um, and you would just uh, mail them off and uh, there would be like clubs where you could uh, sign up to have copies made of shows. And there were, there were whole uh, there were whole companies and businesses that sprang up just selling cassettes up the shows. And it was extremely rare. You, you back, back in those days, McLean, heck, even when I was a little kid, you could not collect, say, the entire, um, the entire series of Jack Benny. Because even even if all the even if all the discs were out there in circulation, where are you going to come up with 600 blank cassette tapes and have all the time have the time to record all those things? I recall a while back I bought a I had bought a big box, just a giant box of somebody's cassette tape collection that they were getting rid of. It was just full of hundreds and hundreds of these tapes where the guy had made his own labels for them. And so much time had gone into these, and now he he was just getting rid of them now because they were just taking up too much space in the storage locker. But there are people out there who put a lot of time into doing this. Needless to say, uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't really keep those tapes for very long because I didn't have space for them either. It was a great day, I thought, when I was in, I think I was in junior high, when the MP3 suddenly became a thing and you could get a half hour show into a relatively small file. The great MP3 revolution, the digitization of audio. And this seemed like a, a great thing to me. I remember getting an MP3 player being so excited that I could fit. But because before this, we were we relied on the tapes that we could check out from the, the library in, in Montana. Uh, but before I lived in Montana, we lived in uh, Brownsville, Oregon when I was a little, little kid. And we just listened to, I, th- I believe it was uh, When Radio Was. Was it, was Stan Freeberg hosting it then? Anyway, it was uh, When Radio Was was the old time radio show that we got back when I was a little kid. But hey, I'm just uh, getting lost in my own nostalgia. So yeah, we had cassette tapes for the longest time, making copies of copies of copies. But when the MP3 comes out, I'm so excited. I buy an MP3 player, or actually no, I, I got one for my birthday, uh, is what that was. And uh, there was a company, I forget what the company was called, but they would sell the shows on MP3 discs relatively cheaply. And you could just cram a couple hundred shows under the MP3 player. And I would listen to that on the bus to school in the mornings. Looking back now, I went back, McLean, because I was, I was curious. I went back and, put, and opened up a, a file I had on an old hard drive of those shows that I had kept in my MP3 player. The sound quality is so horrible. What happened was, it, it was a new technology, okay? It was a new technology. And uh, people were trying to fit as many shows as they could, trying to get it down to, because people's computer speeds weren't that fast back then, so they were trying to get it into as small of a file as they could, so they would drop the bitrate down to where the quality was just awful. And just to give you an example, I'd like to play here. This is an example of uh, a sort of a lower-end MP3 that I would get, and I would happily listen to it at the time, but it sounded awful. So here's a, here's a sample of that. You see how you see how bad that was now in retrospect, don't you? Well, that was horrible. <laughs> I remember uh, listening to one Jack Benny episode that just had crystal clear audio, and they sounded like different people. Yeah, because you weren't you weren't used to used used to the audio being so clear, huh? And then on top of that. And then on top of that, a lot of these MP3s were copies of cassette tapes in the first place. A lot of those cassette tapes were recorded off of radio shows like When Radio Was or Those Were The Days. And what those shows would do was, especially if it was uh, uh, sponsored by a cigarette company or something, they would cut the commercials out of them when they rebroadcast them because 
there was a law, I think, in the 80s where you couldn't broadcast cigarette commercials anymore. But it was just standard practice to kind of chop the show up a bit when you aired it. So you would get incomplete copies of shows with terrible sound quality and, and very primitive noise reduction done on them. It, it would drive me nuts when I would get a copy of a show where somebody had run noise reduction on it. And it just, it made everything that was quiet, silent. So it was very obvious that they had used noise reduction. It just, it drove me nuts. But looking back on it, at, at the time, I had all these shows on this little uh, wallet-sized player in my pocket. So like, I didn't care. I, this was great. Uh, but nowadays, of course, nowadays you have much higher quality MP3s, uh, WAV files, FLAC files, whatever files your kids got these days. MP3 players do not exist anymore, really. I mean, technically speaking, they do, but it's all like Spotify, iTunes, uh, podcasts. For Mostly, I feel like old-time radio shows are living on in the podcast formation. Yeah, or like you listen to them off of YouTube. Me, I have my... my I have a collection on a hard drive and I upload them to uh, Google Drive. I listen to them through my phone. I still have my old MP3 players. Um, I don't use them, of course, because... Why would I? And exactly. Anyway, like I was saying, there's companies these days like Radio Spirits and Radio Archives who go back and take the old discs and use new technology to make a new copy of them and make it sound just clean, crystal clean. I, I am amazed by the work that um, Radio Archives especially has done just amazing work restoring old transcription discs. And actually, the show that I'm about to present to you uh, is part from a collection put out by Radio Archives. So this is it's Trevor McGee and Molly. It's from the 15-minute series, which most of the 15-minute series was lost for a long time uh, until Radio Archives started putting out the sets of the 15-minute episodes. Uh, so Trevor McGee and Molly, half of their shows were the half-hour ones that you probably are aware of, but uh, the last couple of years of the show, they did a daily 15-minute show, and that's what these there episodes were a few- are from few different shows that kind of changed to that format. I think The Great Gildersleeve was one of them, and they started repeating scripts and jokes. Yeah, that's that was really annoying when they started doing that, but part of that was just because of the budget cuts when all the money was going towards TV in the mid-50s. Anyway, so these three episodes, I really like them. They're from April 26th through 28th of 1955, and uh, in them, uh, Favre McGee and Doc Gamble, they face off in an epic golf match. So uh, here it is, and I hope you like it. It's time for Fibber, McGee, and Molly. Sundays through Thursdays, NBC brings you Fibber, McGee, and Molly transcribed. The show is written by Phil Leslie and Len Levinson and directed by Max Hutto. Something seems to be on Mr. McGee's mind as we peek in on him tonight. Keep off the grass, watch out for children, no left turn, proceed with caution. Playing policeman, McGee? No, I'm counting up the signs I saw on my way downtown today. Between here and the Third National Bank, there must be 30 different signs telling you what to do and when to do it. Well, my favorite one is on the bus. In case of an emergency, break the glass and pull the handle. Wouldn't life be great (laughs) stuff, Molly? If every time we had a problem hanging around, a little sign popped up telling us how to handle it. Well, I can think of some problems that a little planning ahead would take care of almost that easily. Like the one a mother faces if Dad dies unexpectedly while the youngsters are still growing up. That's when a Prudential Family Income Plan steps right in and gives her the help she needs when she needs it most. It's a good plan, all right. And it doesn't cost too much either because it provides that extra protection only during the years the children are growing up. This Family Income Plan of Prudential's 
Provides the money you'd need for food, clothing, shelter, and school. The man that has the complete story on this family income plan is your prudential agent. Why don't you ask him to drop around and tell it to you? Here and there across the nation these days, golfers are getting out their golf bags, dusting off their clubs, and polishing up their alibis. And here in downtown Wistful Vista, Mr. McGee and his breathless wife are headed for the sports shop. I'm not breathless, I'm just winded. Slow down, McGee, I can hardly keep up with you. I want to get there before the sale starts, Molly. Come on, it's just around the corner here. Oh, doggone it, they're already open. I hope they haven't sold my club. Your club? What do you mean? They're having a terrific sale today on golf clubs, and I got my eye on a number two iron that's, oh, it's a little beauty. Come on in, keep your fingers crossed. It's crowded. Follow me. Coming through, bud. Let me through, please. I stashed that club away the other day under this table right here. It's in here under this table. Ah, here it is. Good. I'll get it out. It seems to be stuck somewhere. Cut that out over there, mister. I'm taking this club. Hey, the heck you are. Let go of it. I got it, Molly. Look at that. Ain't that a beaut? Who was that yelling? Sounded like... Who grabbed that golf club out of my... McGee. You! Oh, hello, Dr. Gamble. Excuse me. Hello, Molly. You deliberately yanked that golf club out of my hands, McGee. Give me that. Give me back my club. Oh, dear. Always... Your club? Yeah. Have you paid for it, bag britches? Not yet, but I'm going to. I saw that club down here three days ago, McGee. That's why I came down early today. I put this club away four days ago. Boys, boys, my goodness. There must be other golf clubs here. A sale like this... No other golf clubs like this one. It's just right. This baby will add 10 yards to my iron shots. Giving you a 12-yard shot, probably. Oh, is that so? Yeah. Well, you'll get plenty of chances to find out, you overstuffed duffer, because I'll be using this club all summer and beating you like I always do. Oh, now, don't start Beating me? You? Look, you noisy little collection of mud for brains and mush for muscles. I could beat the silly knickerbockers off you if you played golf with Ben Hogan's clubs and I played with a shovel. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's a brave statement. Although, come to think of it, McGee, it seems to me the doctor did win the last few times you boys played at the country club. Sheer luck, that's all. Just because he happened to take a few less strokes than I did don't mean he's a better golfer. Besides, didn't I whale the tar out of this big tar barrel the time we played the Muni course over at Springfield? McGee... I can beat you here at the country club, and I can beat you at Springfield or anywhere in between. Hey, I heard that, doctor. Hello, kid. Hello, Hi, old timer. You mean that sincerely, doctor? Honest? Not just exercising your mouth muscles? Certainly I mean it. Ought to be interesting playing a golf game all the way from Wistful Vista to Springfield, kid. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, Mr. Old Timer. That must be 30 miles. Easy. Through town, over the drainage canal, past Dugan's Lake, across the Happahatchee Hills... All that farmland, them woods east of Slow Rapids, two or three swamps. Now, wait a minute. That's not what I mean, old-timer. I simply meant... Yeah, look I... at him backing out. We heard you, you big phony. Said you could beat me playing golf all the way to Springfield. That's what it sounded like to me, doctor. Betcha. Now, boys, boys, don't get into anything foolish. The only thing foolish is for Fatso to challenge me like this. I can beat that big bag of breeze so bad... Oh, yeah? Well, you just got yourself a golf match, you little noisemaker. Oh, for the... Good, 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 good. You boys can hire me to caddy, both of you. Caddy? Sure. I'll borrow a jeep and a tent and some sleeping bags, get some thermos jugs full of coffee. Why, fellas, I'm going to cater this big event. If this isn't the craziest... Okay by me, old-timer. 
What do you want to bet, McGee? Dollar a stroke, pigeon. Ah. Every stroke you take more than I take, I take a buck from you for it. Done. It'll cost you a fortune. We shall see, doctor. We shall see. <laughs> Molly, you got to come along as my mascot, kiddo. Bring me luck. And what I win is yours. Probably enough to buy you a mink coat. I'll settle right now in advance for a good, strong pair of hiking shoes. Well, I'll go rustle up the jeep and stuff from a friend of the Army Navy I'll store. I'll check my office and go get my golf clubs. I'll go home and change my clothes and we'll all meet in front of my house in an hour. I think I'll go call a policeman and have you both locked up. No, if this isn't the silliest, most ridiculous... <laughs> There's more fun with the McGee's shortly. What do Viceroy's do for you that no other filter tip can do? Do for me? Do for me? Yes, ladies and gentlemen. What do Viceroy's do for all smokers that no other filter tip can do? Here's the answer. Only Viceroy gives you 20,000 filter traps in every filter tip to filter, filter, filter your smoke while the rich, rich flavor comes through. You're right. The flavor does come through smoothly, easily. For my money, Viceroy's taste even better than cigarettes without filters. Next time you hear the question, what do Viceroy's do for you that no other filter tip can do? You know the answer. Only Viceroy gives you 20,000 filter traps in every filter tip to filter, filter, filter your smoke while the rich, rich flavor comes through. Smoke Viceroy's. Get 20,000 filters. Get richer, smoother flavor. Now, let me see if we're agreed on the deal, fellas. I'm to get a dollar a mile for me and the Jeep. Over hill and dale, across creeks and through woods, into and out of ditches, gullies and barns, plowed fields, two bits extra... And my meal's thrown in. The meals are already thrown in, the back of your Jeep. Molly fixed enough sandwiches to last us a week. We'll split the cost of everything. I don't know why you two had to start this morning, for goodness sakes. Why don't you wait till tomorrow and... I'll tell you why we had to start this morning, because I want to get going while I'm good and mad, that's why. If I sleep on it and wait till tomorrow, I'm liable to realize what a silly idea the whole thing is and not... You go... want to back out, Welcher? I can answer that with two words, Doctor. Tee off. Tee off? Yeah. Here? Well, I thought we'd get in the Jeep and ride out to the edge of town and then... Aha, now who's a welcher? Chicken, eh? Don't trust your aim on this nice, broad street. Hand me a ball, old-timer. Here you are, Doc. I'll set her up on a lump of dirt. Uh, there. Oh, come on, come on, Fatso. Hit it. Watch it, everybody. Street clear? Yep. Four! <laughs> What'd I hit? Somebody's car across the street there. Put a big dimple in the door of it, Doc. Oh, no. That's my car. Oh, for the love of it. That's him. a good start, Fatso. Ball bounced over Toops's fence down there somewhere. Well, I'll go get the ball and bring it back in the street for it. Oh, and... no, you don't. Doc plays that ball right from where it darn is. That's the rules. Oh. Stand aside now while I drive. I'll show you how to put a ball right down the street and out to the city limits. Careful now, McGee. Hit it straight. A one and a two and a three. <laughs> Hey, that's a dandy, Johnny. Straight down the street. Straight, straight, and... Oh, oh for the... Who left the lid off of that dad-ratted manhole down there? <laughs> <laughs> Sailed right in like a homing pigeon. All the dirty, rotten luck on Remember the rules, Sonny. Play it from where it lies. <laughs> oh, how can I get down in there? I'll get you diving suit. <laughs> 
Missouri. Cheer up, Doc. We ain't got more than 25 miles more to go. Oh, anybody know what time it is? Oh, it must be noon. Noon. It was noon when we were going through the Ninth Street Tunnel. It must be... By George, it is 4.30 p.m. Mm, no wonder I'm so hungry. Where's your ball, Doc? Oh, I see it. Halfway up that smoking hot cinder heap. Back of the glass works up there, Doc. Oh, fine. <laughs> Where's McGee's? Uh, it went further than yours, Doc. I think it's over here past the... Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, that was a nasty uh-oh if I ever heard one. <laughs> Here's your ball, Johnny. Down there in the drainage canal. What? Oh, no. Of all the dead-dreaded pieces of luck. Sure is, Johnny. Good luck, too. The canal's as dry as a bone. Yeah, but still, how'll I get it out of there? <laughs> oh, that cinder heap doesn't look bad at all now. What are you going to do, McGee? Well, let me survey the situation. See it? Down there, Johnny. Oh, yeah. Oh, dear, the sides are so high. Here's iron ladder you can climb down. I'll just squirrel down and survey the situation. Hey, Molly, I got an idea. You come down here, too. Okay. I'll follow you, but sometimes, McGee, I wish I'd have kept my fingers crossed when I said I do. Now what's he up to? Something tricky, no doubt. Yeah. Oh, this is dandy. Hey, Doc, don't this drainage canal go all the way from Whistle Vista to Springfield? Well, yes, McGee, it does. Well, and I'm in a wonderful spot. I can't hit my ball wrong as long as I keep it in the canal. I'm taking Molly along as an impartial witness, and I'm just going to whale the ball right down the alley till we get to Springfield. Well, so long. Oh, boy, look at her go down that concrete. Hey, that's pretty sharp. <laughs> Looks like you're going to lose, Doctor. <laughs> I think not. You going to follow them down the drainage canal? That's the last thing I'd do. That canal goes to Springfield, all right, only in the opposite direction from the way McGee is going. Hey, I better run and tell well, him. Don't bother him. Huh? Don't bother. He'll find out as soon as he finds himself back in Wistful Vista. <laughs> we'll say goodnight to Fibber and Molly in a moment. This summer, enjoy the type of cooking all America loves. Outdoor cooking. It's easier than you think. Cheaper than you think. The May Woman's Home Companion brings you a ten-page condensation of a new book, not yet released, titled The Complete Book of Outdoor Cookery. You'll get just the kind of advice you need to begin outdoor cooking for the first time, or to perfect it if you're an old hand at the grill. You'll learn how to select the right kind of equipment. There's a section on picking meats, poultry, and fish, recipes for frills for the grill. And in the same issue, learn what Dr. David Mace advised the troubled woman who fell in love with her husband's best friend. Get your copy of Woman's Home Companion today. You just can't afford to miss it. All the dirty tricks. Sixteen strokes that wrong turn cost me. Zip up your sleeping bag and go to sleep, McGee. Somebody could have told me I was going the wrong way down that canal. You, old-timer, that's what I'm paying you to caddy me for. Go to sleep, Johnny. Bad sportsmanship, that's what it is. Chiseling. Go to sleep, McGee. I'd still be going the wrong way if I hadn't recognized the Oak Street Bridge six blocks from home. Go to sleep, Johnny. 
Molly went on home from there, and I had to play back out here by myself. Hold asleep, by... McGee, or I'm going to get up and zip your sleeping bag up all the way. Ah, uh, it's going to be different tomorrow, you big tub. Good night. Good, Good night. night. Fibber McGee and Molly is an NBC Radio Network production transcribed with Bill Thompson as the old-timer and Arthur Q. Bryan as Dr. Gamble. Well, who's going to win the world's strangest and silliest golf match? Be sure to tune in tomorrow for further play-by-play description of this world-shaking athletic event. And remember, the match will be broadcast exclusively over the station to which you are now listening. Good night. It's time for Fibber, McGee, and Molly. Sundays through Thursdays, NBC brings you Fibber, McGee, and Molly transcribed. The show is written by Phil Leslie and Len Levinson and directed by Max Hutto. First... Let's peek into the house at 79 Wistful Vista and hear this. McGee, I just saw Dr. Gamble coming home. Yeah? Yeah. He sure looks tired. What he needs is a long rest and a change of scenery. That's the advice he's always given me. It cost me five bucks besides. (laughs) Well, I'm afraid there's no rest in the cards for Dr. Gamble this year, dearie. Too many people around here really need him. Well, I sure hope those people recognized the need for prudential sickness and accident protection before they needed Doc Gamble. A prudential insurance company plan like that can sure take a lot of the worry out of any sickness. That's right. It can provide you with a regular monthly income if you can't work at your job. Yes, and pay you for as long as 10 years in case of sickness and possibly for the rest of your life in case of injury. And the Prudential's income protection plan covers you 24 hours a day for every type of sickness and for injuries received on the job or not. And with the hospital and surgical expense policy in your sickness and accident plan, the Prudential could pay a big part of those swapping bills. Friends, you really ought to ask your Prudential agent to tell you about these wonderful plans tomorrow. It's the kind of day-to-day living protection every family needs. According to what it said on the radio, Mr. McGee and Dr. Gamble got so steamed up yesterday over which one was the better golfer that they started right out playing a match from Wistful Vista clear to Springfield, 30 miles across country. It's morning now, and Mrs. McGee is on her way out to join the golfers. It was nice of you to drive in town and pick me up, Mr. Oldtimer. Glad to do it, daughter. I always wake up around daybreak anyhow. Left the boys rolled up in their sleeping bags and snored away like a coffee grinder full of rocks. (laughs) (laughs) I think their heads are full of rocks myself. Such a crazy golf game. (laughs) Should have heard him arguing during the night. Johnny accused the doctor of whistling in his sleep and keeping him awake, and the doc accused Johnny of doing it. <laughs> Which one was it? Me! Ah, <laughs> 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 oh, they got their sleeping bags rolled up against that haystack yonder. Uh-huh. Uh, see them? Oh, yes, I see the boys. They're up. They're both up. <laughs> hey, fellas, I'm back. Look what I brought you, Johnny. Hello, dearie. Hi, doctor. Oh, hi, kiddo. I'm glad to see you. Oh, boy, what a night. Hello, Molly. Hope you brought some coffee. I'll bring it, Doc. Part of the service you fellas get from your friendly neighborhood caddy, scorekeeper, chauffeur, caterer, and referee. Me. 
Got a thermos jug full of coffee in the back of the Jeep here. I brought some donuts, too, boys, and some sweet rolls. Great, great. I'm starving. Yeah, me too. Get that coffee out and we'll get started. We couldn't bring any hot biscuits, though. Or any of them crispy, brown, delicious little sausages that daughter cooks so pretty that I ate 12 of them. Well, never mind that. Just pour Nardy some... scrambled eggs that nobody can cook them like she can with them hash browns or the waffles with the maple syrup, either. <laughs> They'd have got cold. Well, as long as I get some hot coffee, I'll live. Come on, pour the coffee. Uh, looks like the coffee got cold, too. What? <laughs> I must have left the lid for this thermos jug sitting on your sink, daughter. Oh, oh for the... Well, cold or not, pour me a cup of it. Well, come on, old-timer, get the jug out of there. It ought to be lukewarm at least. We can yep, have... it would be too, Doc, if we hadn't hit that culvert a little fast back there. Huh? I guess it was the culvert that done it. Knocked the jug over, spilled all the coffee, all oh, over everything. My. Sure is a mess back here. What? Well, for the... Where's my golf club? No, 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 Doc. No, 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 Doc. Wasn't my fault. I couldn't help it. Go no, ahead. No. Oh, oh. <laughs> He hit his golf ball, daughter. <laughs> yeah, for a minute there, I thought, well, come on, Johnny. You're your turn now. Drive off, boy. Let's get a go. Come on. <sighs> ratted bushes. Can't hardly My, this brush is terrible. I wish you boys had stuck to the road. Yeah. Well, we're getting out of it, though. There's a clearing right ahead. Here's my ball here. Now, if you'll kindly get out of the line of fire, George, old blob, I'll shoot. I'll be glad to if I only knew where to hide. I've seen you whack a golf ball and hit people behind you. Ah, boil your head. Four. Oh, that was a dandy, dearie. Looks like a beauty, uh. Uh oh. I apologize, McGee. <laughs> I always said you couldn't hit the side of a barn, but you just proved that you can hit the side of a barn. Very fun. Oh, McGee, here comes the man. Oh. Hey, what are you two cow pasture pool players doing playing pool in my cow pasture? Oh, hi, mister. Well, I'm sorry I hit your barn. I uh, We're just passing through. What's your idea? Try to give me a herd of discontented cows? Cows are sensitive. Get upset they don't give milk. If my cows don't give milk, I'll sue you, fellas. Well, I'm sorry. Uh, excuse we... me, neighbor. If you'll just step aside a little, I'll show you where he meant to knock his ball. Oh, excuse me. Now watch this, McGee. Here's where your ball should have gone, Sonny. That's the way that... Oh. Oh, no. Oh. Right in the pig pen. Get off my property, all of you. You've got to stop them fool pigs before they run $40 with the fat off yourselves. Back to Wistful Vista in a minute. Did you know modern appliances and modern homes make it easier to put on weight? How many calories did old-fashioned washing use up? How many did a big old-fashioned kitchen burn up in extra steps? In the May Woman's Home Companion, Dr. Herbert Pollock, an expert in the field of nutrition, offers new housewife diets. Learn how today's woman, with today's living, can keep at her most attractive and healthful weight. And no mother of teenagers will want to miss the discussion of vacation jobs for youngsters. 116 work-for-pay jobs are evaluated. Also in the May Woman's Home Companion, be sure to read the condensation of the best-selling novel, The View from Pompey's Head, by Hamilton Basso. 
What happens when Anson Page sees his childhood sweetheart for the first time in 15 years? Get your copy of Woman's Home Companion today. You just can't afford to miss it. That's your ball there, Doc. Right in front of us. I see it. And let me out. Ooh, let me out of this bone breaker, too. Sure would be nice to ride on a road for a change. Yeah, this rough country. Hey, before I hit this next one, old-timer, what's the score so far? Yeah, how do we stand by now, anyhow? Well, let me see. I got it all wrote down here, fellas. Now, yesterday, when we finished the day last night, Johnny here had uh, 211 strokes to the doctor's 194. Yeah, yeah, but today, how do we do today so far? I'm catching up, I know that. Doc put seven balls into Dugan's Lake this morning to my two. Yep, and it took him nine strokes to get out of the pig pen back there, too. <laughs> Bring the docks total up to uh, 300 and... No, is it... 429. Oh, we still have about 12 miles to go to Springfield. What's McGee's score? Well, working on that now. Let me see. Add two, carry the four, dump four, seven, and times seven is plus three balls in the culvert. Uh, 433. 433? Boy, oh boy, I'm just four strokes behind you now, Doc. And that's right, too. I've been keeping McGee's score, too, Doctor. 433 up to now. Well, we'll soon fix that, Molly. Old timer, keep your eye on this one. I'm going to drive it a mile. I'll watch it, too, Doctor. So will I, George. I'll stand over on the driver's side of the Jeep, behind you here, so I can watch good. Quiet, please. Now watch it. Here goes. Missed it. McGee, get away from that Jeep. You deliberately... Oh, I'm terribly sorry, Doctor. Accidentally bumped the horn button. Well, that's a stroke, though. McGee, shame on you. 430 that makes. Well, put that down, old-timer. He will not. Don't you dare count that stroke against the doctor. Thank you, Molly. You little chiseler. Just for that, I'm going to drive it clear over that hill up there. Now, watch this one. This is the one that counts. Missed again. (laughs) Confound the dirty, rotten (laughs) luck. Come on, kiddo. Up the hill. (sighs) I'm winded. Yeah. Hey, Doc, what's your score? 453 strokes. Come on up here and look what's down the hill here. You hear that, Molly? 453 for Doc, and I've only took 451. I'm two strokes ahead, kiddo. Two strokes ahead. Good for you. Boy, oh boy, what a comeback. Holy smoke. Look what we got in front of us now. A railroad. Boxcars, even. Well, I'd just as soon walk along the tracks as ride that Jeep any further. Of all the rough rides... Your ball is next to that clump of brush there, Johnny. No, 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 to your left. That's it. Now, you may drive when ready, Doctor. I'll watch it from down by the freight cars here. Okay. Now, if I can just loft it across the tracks and over the cars. Here goes. Oh, where's it going? I can't see it. It's not going over. It's... It's... Uh-oh. Went into that empty coal car. Of all the unreconstructed hexachlorophenal osseethylogenous hypoallergic staphylococcus infections that ever... What did he say? <laughs> I don't know, but if he were prescribing it for me, I'd never take it. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Doc, this really greases his skids. Oh. He won't get out of that coal car in ten strokes. <laughs> 
till he starts wailing away inside there. It'll sound like Gene Krupa in a boiler factory. <laughs> McGee, can't I just drop a new ball here and count an extra stroke? Not a chance, Fatso. Rule says you got to play your ball where it is. Now get in there and start blasting your way out. <laughs> An old-timer. Yes, Johnny? You get in there with him to count the strokes. Okay, Johnny. Oh, dear, what a golf game. Even Ripley wouldn't believe a tenth of it. Oh, my gosh. What's wrong? Hey, they're going to move those freight cars. Hey, Doc. Yep? You're moving. You two better get off. Get off? Yeah, jump, jump. We're going towards Springfield, aren't we? Yeah, jump. Why should I jump? I'll just wait till we get there, and then I'll shoot my ball out and win the match. <laughs> Fibber and Molly will be right back. Sparkle, sparkle, your hair too. Sparkles after Dial Shampoo. Dial Shampoo gets your hair clean. Dial Shampoo gives your hair sheen. Diamond sparkle, that's for you. When you use Dial Shampoo. Isn't that an exciting promise? Well, it's true. Dial Shampoo does give your hair that diamond sparkle look. A brighter, more appealing look you love. With Dial Shampoo, you get loads of lanolated lather instantly. It cleanses every strand of your hair gently and thoroughly. Leaves it ever so soft and ever so easy to manage. Get Dial Shampoo in the unbreakable squeeze bottle. Until you do, you just can't imagine what a difference one shampooing can make. Diamond sparkle, that's for you when you use Dial Shampoo. Dial Shampoo. Look, Molly, if Doc can hit his ball into a freight train, which then starts for Springfield, why can't I chip my ball up into the Jeep and we can haul it right down to the finish line? No, McGee. If you let me at the wheel, I can truthfully say I drove that ball all the way. Oh, that wouldn't be ethical, no. Oh, but Doc is... That was an accident. Gee whiz. And besides, he wanted to drop another ball and take one-stroke penalty. But you made him get in that coal car. I didn't know the train was going to start, and I didn't know it was going in the direction of Springfield, too, either, and I, oh, gee whiz, good night. Good night, all. Fibber, McGee, and Molly is an NBC Radio Network production transcribed with Bill Thompson as the old-timer, Arthur Q. Bryan as Dr. Gamble, and Jack Moyles as the farmer. This is John Wall telling you that tomorrow there's going to be a titanic struggle between McGee and Doc at the finish of the world's longest golf game. The cross-country champion will be crowned tomorrow night on Fibber, McGee, and Molly. It's time for Fibber, McGee, and Molly. Sundays through Thursdays, NBC brings you Fibber, McGee, and Molly transcribed. The show is written by Phil Leslie and Len Levinson and directed by Max Huttle. Let's listen in on this conversation between our two friends at 79 Wistful Vista. What's that you're looking at, McGee? Oh, a little after seven, I guess. 
And what time is it, McGee? The modified five plan of the Prudential Insurance Company. McGee, you haven't heard a word I've said. Oh, I'm sorry, Molly. This modified five plan of Prudential's started me thinking back to the first five years we were married. Remember how we scrimped and scrambled for the mighty buck? Oh, do I. But young couples always find budgeting a problem, don't they? They sure do. I know most of them would like to have about twice as much insurance as they feel they can manage. And that's exactly why the Prudential developed the Modified Five Plan. For the first five years of this plan, these young married folks who naturally expect their income to go up and actually have the life insurance protection they want at just about half the premium they'd ordinarily expect to pay. Well, what happens after this five-year breathing spell? Then the regular premium goes into effect. So if you're a young couple beginning to set up house and start a family... You should know about Prudential's Modified Five Plan. It can give you the life insurance protection you need when you most need it. Just ask your Prudential agent. Mr. McGee and Dr. Gamble have been playing golf now for three days continuously. Here they are now with about three miles left to go and a crowd's begun to gather. Hey, how about this, Molly? Look at the crowd we got following us, kiddo. Yes, sir. Getting to be quite a thing, this golf game. Mm -hmm. Whose play is it next? I think it's Doc's. Him and the old-timer over there by the Jeep. Boy, it's a good thing we got the old-timer along to caddy and hunt balls and bring his sandwiches. Hey, Mr. McGee? Oh, Mr. McGee? Who's that? Sounds like Lester. Oh, let me through, please. Oh, let, let me through. I, I'm, I'm a friend of his. He, he has friends. Uh, hi, Miss McGee, Mr. McGee. Well, it is Lester. Hello. Hi, Les. I'm glad to see you. Gosh, this thing sure is turning out to be a circus, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, the whole town is talking about it. Uh, I brought Mr. Wimple with me and some other folks. They're over there by the car. Yeah? Well, now, that's real heartwarming, Les. You hear that, Molly? My friends and neighbors coming all this distance just to spur me on to success. That's mighty heartwarming. Well, uh, some of them now, they, uh... They've got bets on Dr. Gamble to win, Mr. McGee. What? Well... Oh, but not not me, though. No, I'm I'm picking you to win. Well, thank you, Les. Is, uh, uh, is the doctor beating you very bad up to now? Nah. Practically a tie, Les. He's just a bare scant 21 strokes ahead at this point. Uh, 21 strokes. That's huh? all. Practically a tie. Golly, that, uh... That sure sounds like a lot to me. Nah, the score so far is 591 for Doc and only 612 for me. We still got three or four miles to go yet. I'll cut old Doc down like a chainsaw cutting down a sapling. Boy, by the time we finish up at the... Hey, hey, what's going on? The old timer's coming this way with somebody. All right, all right, everybody, stand back. Back up there. Let the radio feller through there. Radio feller, he says. Hmm, must be going to broadcast the... Hey, come on, quiet, everybody. Church! Oh, the radio feller's going to make a radio speech here. Take it away there, radio feller. Well, good morning, good morning, sports fans. This is your old reliable Pete Plummer from the special events department of WVIS, the golden voice of Wistful Vista, here to bring you a quick rundown on the marathon golf match now underway between Dr. George Gamble and Mr. Fibber McCree. McGee, bud. Shh. Well, with about three miles left to play before the match winds up at the number one green of the Springfield Country Club, the score now stands. Dr. Gamble in the lead with 591 strokes so far, and his opponent... Uh, Trevor McGee. Yes, sir. His opponent has 612 strokes. Oh, it's been a sensational comeback today, folks, because this man, McGee... He said it right. ...was trailing last night by 31 strokes, and he has pulled up to within 12 strokes of the doctor. And now we bring you a word from the leader in this remarkable game, Dr. George Gamble. 
Uh, doctor, are you concerned about the outcome? No, not at all. I still have a nice lead, and we haven't too much farther to go. <laughs> Thank you, Doctor. Now, his opponent, Mr... McGee. Uh... All I want to say is thanks to my many loyal friends like Les Nelson, who have come out here to cheer me on. And for those friends, I want to say I shall strive to victory. I also want to dedicate this victory I'm going to win to my loyal wife, Mrs. Molly McGee, who has been a constant inch of sorspiration... Uh, constant source of perspiration... A persp... Source of... She's stuck with me like feathers to glue, and let's get on with the golf game. Yeah. Hey, your ball's right here, Doctor, and it's your shot. Stand back, folks. Give him room. Thanks, old-timer. Oh, and in case you want to know, Springfield is that away. <laughs> Already asked about that. Thanks. Oh, and in case you'd like to know something else, Doctor, you're going to miss the ball completely on this next swing. McGee, that isn't oh, any... Oh, I am, am I? Yep, and I'll tell you why, Doctor. I got a book from the library a couple of weeks ago called Think It and Make It So. Oh, you've learned to read, have you? This book tells how if you think a thing hard enough and concentrate on it enough, it'll happen. Well, excuse me. And I'm concentrating so hard on you missing that ball. <laughs> excuse me, what were you saying, Sonny? Ah, I'm going to take that book back and hit the library and all the night. <laughs> There's more fun with the McGee shortly. Time's growing short to get in on this special spring fashion offer from Dial Soap. A genuine leather clutch bag for just two wrappers and one dollar including tax. If you want to order or reorder, do so right away. We don't want anyone to be sorry she missed this fashion find. A regular $3.50 value, it's a handsome combination billfold and handbag of soft, supple leather. Carry it alone as a handbag or in your purse comes in five smart spring colors. Scarlet Flame, Spring Green, Pastel Pink, Lemon Yellow, and Champagne. Get order blanks in stores or order direct. For each clutch bag, enclose a $1 bill and two dial wrappers, regular or bath size. Print your name, address, and color wanted. Send to dial box 7967, Chicago 77. Offer ends June 15th. To save money on a genuine leather clutch bag, send your order to dial box 7967, Chicago 77. Do it right away. And this is Pete Plummer coming to you again from the cross-country golf match being played by Dr. George Gamble, the surgical slicer, and Fibber McGee, the hammering hooker. Whatever that means. Golf term. We're down to the last mile now, and the doctor's lead has been cut to four strokes. We're going to cut about six more off. And it looks like it's going for a tight finish, and that's where we'll be with you again at the finish. This is Pete Plummer saying stay tuned to WVIS. Oh, my, this is exciting, McGee. Your news. Yep. This broadcast is probably being heard coast to coast, clear across the country. Where's Doc Gamble, you see? Just over there on the other side of the crowd. I guess it's his shop oh, because... Oh, uh, Mr. McGee, Mrs. McGee. Oh, Mr. Wimple. Hi, Wimp. Les told me you were out here. My goodness, isn't this exciting? Yeah. I've been over talking to Dr. Gamble, and frankly, Mr. McGee, you've got him worried. Really, Mr. Wimple? I have, huh? Got old fat so worried. Can't stand the thought of getting beat, eh? Well, uh, that isn't the way he explained it to me. Uh, he said, and I'm quoting the doctor, you understand. Yes. Uh, he said, Wally, McGee is taking this so big and bragging so loud, I'm afraid when I get through beating him, he'll go off in the corner and cut his throat. What? I'm worried, Wallace, he said. Oh, is that so? 
Well, I'll show him whose throat gets cut. I'm going to cut his throat with this shot right now. Watch it. Four. Take it easy now, McGee. Stay relaxed. I can't relax. I'm wound up like the ribbons on a maypole. Boy, this is the test. Here you are, peanut, popcorn, buttermilk, rock candy, hot coffee. Well, for the... Hey, old-timer, you're supposed to be caddying for us, not catering to the crowd. Yeah, for Pete's sake, what do you think we're paying you for? Oh, I meant to tell you, fellas, you ain't. I'm paying you. Huh? Been doing so well selling food and drink and souvenirs, I'm going to cut you boys in on the profits, if any. Here you are, get your scorecards. Can't tell the players without a scorecard. Can't tell these players anything with a scorecard, but get your scorecards in. Well, we can finish without them, McGee. Come on. And here we are, folks, right down at the finish line. Here on the number one green at the Springfield Golf Course, the marathoners have come to the end of their long, long trail. In high time it is. Dr. Gamble's ball and the ball belonging to Mr. McGee are almost side by side with a score. Now hold your breath. The score is exactly even with 768 strokes apiece. The two balls are about 15 feet from the hole as the first player grips his club and steps up to the ball. Good luck, dearie. Thanks. Well, this is it. <laughs> this is it. Kind of kind of hard to hold my club with all my fingers crossed, but but this this is it. through that again for a thousand bucks. Oh, I'm so proud of you, McGee. And now it's Dr. Campbell's turn. Man, oh man, is he in a tight spot and tired, too. He steps up, putter in hand, bends down to look at his ball, straightens up again and says, Oh, McGee. Yes, doctor? I uh, fear you made a slight mistake. Mistake? And I want to thank you. What do you mean? You knocked my ball into the cup for me. This one's yours here. What, what, what? do you mean? Oh, no. <laughs> what? You mean I got to go through that again? Oh. Come on, come on. You know the rules. Best you can do now is get a tie. Oh. <laughs> go ahead. See if you can do that. <laughs> okay. He steps up to the ball. He waggles his putter nervously. Seems to be rushing himself. He's hit it, and it goes straight toward the pin. Straight, straight. Straight, almost there. Oh. And it stops. Oh. And Dr. Gamble wins. Congratulations, Doctor. Yeah, congrats, Doc. And how much did you win on this great marathon long-distance golf match, which took three days, 30 miles, and 769 strokes, Doctor? Huh? How much? Well, it was a dollar a stroke, and I'll concede McGee's next putt there. So I won a dollar, one single big round American dollar. Well, I must say you earned it. And how about paying off, McGee? Come on, pay off, loser. Okay, Ducky, I got the buck right here, but don't be a piker. Come on. How about playing all the way back home, double or nothing? Oh, oh no, McGee. not Come on. Really. No, we'll start right here. We'll say goodnight to Fibber and Molly in a moment. Friday night's the night for Dinah Shore, Frank Sinatra, and Dave Garraway on NBC Radio. 
Dinah offers a bright, relaxing quarter hour of music and song that takes the edge off jangled nerves and makes for good listening either during dinner or after. The whole family will enjoy the Dinah Shore Show Fridays on NBC. And there's more music on NBC when the Frank Sinatra Show comes along. Frankie takes the top tunes of the day and gives them the unique Sinatra style. He also manages to interject some casual chatter about the songs, how they were written, and why. Also on Friday night, there's Dave Garraway with a program of real old-fashioned entertainment. Dave's show takes on the informality of a country store on a spring fever day as he brings you music, the latest news, and interviews. Yes, Friday night's the night on NBC Radio for the big three in entertainment. Dinah Shore, Frank Sinatra, and Dave Garraway. Oh, what a day. What a three days. Yep. Tired? Yep. Glad to get home? Yep. <laughs> Is that all you can say, yep? Nope. Good night. Good night, all. Fibber McGee and Molly is an NBC Radio Network production transcribed with Bill Thompson as the old-timer and Mr. Wimple, Arthur Q. Bryan as Dr. Gamble, and Robert Easton as Les. The sports announcer was played by Barney Phillips. This is John Wall saying, Don't forget to be back Sunday night when Mr. McGee is initiated into the Mystery Lady Society. Hmm? Well, tune in and you'll find out. All right, those were three episodes of the Fever McGee and Molly 15-minute series from, from April 26th, 27th, and 28th, 1955. I now hand the microphone over to McLean. I believe you have a thing to give us, bud. I do have a bit of a thing, Jake. It's apropos that you uh, bring up sort of this era of old-time radio kind of in the 50s towards the later end of the golden age of radio because um, the show I'm presenting today kind of goes along with that theme. This was The Magnificent Montague, which broadcast from November 1950 to November 1951. A very short-lived show. You know, it's kind of like TV now. For every blockbuster, long-running, cultural touchstone television series, there's also just as many that are like one season or one pilot episode and are done. Yeah, there were there were a lot of there were a lot of shows in the '50s that just ran for one season. Uh, the Six Shooter was one of them. Great show, Jimmy Stewart. I love that show. Only got one season. Yeah, I think a lot of that is due not to the show's quality, but to just the transition to television. And while 1950, 1951 isn't necessarily the the beginning of television's takeover. There is that sort of... You can see it looming. It's, you know, it's just off stage getting ready to come yeah. on and take the scene. But um, this show, The Magnificent Montague, starred uh, Monty Woolley, who was a very respected, very well-known uh, stage actor, mostly, but also had many appearances in film, radio, and television. You know, star of stage, screen, and radio. Most known for um, appearing in the play and the movie The Man Who Came to Dinner. Um, and he's, he's kind of... I guess stereotyped, or not not stereotyped, but typecasted perhaps as kind of this stuffy, you know, he's a Shakespearean actor, kind of. He's got this gravitas to him. So I think in this program, The Magnificent Montague, his character is kind of built up like that. Uh, it focuses on 
Montague, who is an out-of-work um, former Shakespearean actor who now um, has to take a massive step down in his career and take on the role of a uh, Daily Network radio. You know, in the in the cast, it also has his uh, wife and then his wisecracking maid, and they trade jabs and barbs at each other. But it's it does seem to be kind of a parody of this image that people had of Monty Woolley, of this kind of stuffy actor, and seeing him become like humbled and have to take this job that he views as so much like lesser than him. So that's where a lot of the show's kind of like humor comes from. I haven't really delved too much into the program myself. I've always been meaning to like get around to it, but I haven't like taken a lot of time to listen to it. Frankly, McLean, I'm impressed that you managed to uh, come up with a program that I've not really heard of. Yeah, I uh, I remember I remember just hearing the pilot episode on an old time radio internet radio um, station, but other than that. There's been, I have not seen or heard much about it. And I'm honestly impressed that there's so much of the show actually like available as there is just because it's so like little known. And there's a lot of these like one season or just a few episode shows that are out there and that people just don't know about. Partly, I think, due to their quality and then partly due, like we said, to just radio giving way to television. All right. Well, here's the Magnificent Montague. Uh, try to play it quietly, though. There's a rat sleeping over in that corner. Ah, oh, jeez. Okay, I'll go out and buy some traps while this is playing. <laughs> the National Broadcasting Company presents The Magnificent Montague, starring Monty Woolley. In 1926, reviewing Edwin Montague's great performance in King Lear, Burns Mantle referred to him as the Magnificent Montague. Edwin never forgave Burns Mantle for that understatement. Today, still happily married to his one-time leading lady, Lily Boehm, Edwin Montague courageously remains true to his conviction that he is the world's greatest actor. In the last eight years, he's refused to act in any play in which he did not have the starring role. In the last eight years, he's refused to be in any drama in which he did not have the privilege of rewriting and directing personally. In the last eight years, he hasn't worked. But Edwin Montague knows that there will be a return of that golden era of the New York stage in Shakespeare. And when that time comes... By the way, the time right now is two in the afternoon, and we're in the Montague apartment. Okay, okay. Take it easy, you'll last longer. The residents of Edwin Montague and Miss Lily Bohem, they ain't up yet. Who knows when... They're actors. It could be ten minutes. It could be next Tuesday. Who knows? Well, I'll take it, Agnes. Here, honey. Please get me some coffee. Hello, Charlie. Well, I really haven't asked Edwin yet. You see... Now, wait. Wait, Charlie. I promise I'll ask him as soon as he gets up. And what's more, you can tell them he'll take the job. Yes. Goodbye. Here's your coffee, honey. Agnes, what do you think? My husband, Edwin Montague, is going to work. You're kidding. No. <laughs> this is the end of one of the world's biggest nonprofit organizations. <laughs> Agnes, you'll see. He'll be easier to get along with. He'll be a changed man. Yeah, I guess so. Still, it was kind of fascinating watching him gracefully slide from unemployment insurance into Social Security. <laughs> so he found a play, huh? Well, it's not a play. He's going into radio. 
Agnes, my coffee. Oh, leave some dishes for him to smash when I tell him about it. Radio. And he doesn't know yet. Uh-uh. Agnes, a job will snap him out of this dream he has that he's still the foundation of the American theater. Otherwise, he'll spend the rest of his life sitting around the proscenium club with those broken-down hams. You mean the rest of the broken-down hams. Agnes, that'll be quite enough. The big matinee idol. The Sinatra of the 20s. The way he lords it around this house. Agnes, stop. The great Montague, the great windbag. Stop. The big actor. And all the time it was you who had more acting talent than he ever hoped to have. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> you know what, honey? What? You're a bigger ham than he is. <laughs> I never doubted it. Oh, now, please, Agnes, no fights with him this morning. Everything has got to go right. Did you get his imported kippers? I could only get the domestic kippers. Oh, well. They're the same, aren't they? Identical. They taste the same, smell the same, feel the same. Good. But he'll know the difference. I never seen such a lowlife who lives so high. Agnes, please. English kippers, British clothes, imported shoes. What's he trying to do? Single-handedly pull England out of the red? Agnes, just this morning, don't say anything that will irritate him. He's up. Get his breakfast ready. He's doing his morning vocal exercises already. That means he's finished combing his beard. Oh, brother, he takes care of that beard like a chorus girl with her first mink. <laughs> now we'll start roaming the hill. I roam the hill. <laughs> quick, quick, Agnes, here he comes. Good morning, Edwin. <laughs> Sit down. I roam the hills <clears throat> Good morning, Lily. He made it. Uh, good morning, Agnes I see you got here this morning I suppose you arrived by your usual means of transportation A broom Edwin, please It's such a beautiful day And I must say you look so, so dashing this morning, doesn't he, Agnes? Oh, I think he's a dream <laughs> Agnes <laughs> Agnes, my dear Agnes, it is a little early to start debating our respective beauty. All I can say is that after 25 years of having to look at your face before eating breakfast, there can be but one epitaph on my tombstone. Edwin Montague, he had a strong stomach. Please, now, please, no quarrels. Look, Edwin, Agnes fixed your breakfast just the way you like it. Well, there must be a first time. Here, Edwin, your raw egg and Worcestershire sauce. Kippered herring, a broiled veal kidney, two mutton chops, rare, and old gratin potatoes. The breakfast of champions. Excellent. <laughs> now, uh, you go ahead and eat, Edwin. Oh, uh, by the way, Charlie Foster telephoned this morning. Oh. He feels that he has at last found the most... What's the matter? Domestic kippers. Edwin! Domestic kippers, what is this place becoming? A white tower? <laughs> This is another of Agnes's attempts to poison me. Look at that kipper. It looks off. What do you think the kipper's thinking about, looking up at you? <laughs> now, listen, Miss Housemaid's knee of 19 or 2. If you... Edwin, we couldn't get imported kippers this morning. Now, uh, will you please let me go on? Sorry, dear. Go on. How about Charlie, yeah? Now, I, uh, I don't want you to be shocked. Shocked? <laughs> 
Nothing could shock me after that excitement we had at the Proscenium Club last night. We had to drum Cecil Banks out of the organization. Oh, poor old Cecil. What did he do? We found out Cecil's going into radio. Radio? Yes, radio. Please don't make me repeat that word again. Cecil Banks, another deserter of the theater. I was up until three in the morning, striking out all reference to him in my memoirs. <laughs> Another name gone. Radio. Better to dig ditches than that. <laughs> oh, now, what's this about Charlie uh, Foster? Well, Edwin, uh, Charlie Foster has a job for you. The starring role. I knew it. I knew it. They finally found a Juliet for me. It's not Romeo and Juliet. It's not? Oh. No. You see, this job that Charlie has for you is... Imagine, the... in all New York, they can't find a Juliet. Ah, if you only hadn't let yourself go, but... But continue, darling. Tell me about the job. Well? Edwin, what did you mean by, if I just hadn't let myself go? <laughs> oh, now, Lily, I didn't mean your looks or your going to seed or anything like that. Well, just what did you mean? Well, I meant, uh, I meant, well, you found new interests. Every afternoon, you're, you're busy as secretary of the Women's Bird Watchers of America. That's all I meant. Oh. Why, Lily, honey, you're still as charming and as captivating as the day I first picked you out of the chorus of the Notting Little Princess and made you my leading lady. <laughs> now, what about this job? Edwin, I honestly don't want to bring this up again. But once and for all, it's got to be settled between us. I was not in the chorus of the naughty little princess. I was the star. Oh, no, not that again. Then you didn't pick me to be your leading lady. David Belasco had to talk me into it. You were known as the worst scene stealer on the American stage. I, a scene stealer? Let's face it, darling. I spent five years on the stage with you before I knew there was an audience. You so gallantly hid it from me. <laughs> well, so that's how you felt. This, then, is my penalty for loving an envious woman. Envious? I never envied you, Edwin. I stood aside as you took your bows. I was content and happy. But in all decency, allow me the memory. The memory of the little success that I did have. Say that again. The whole thing? <laughs> no, 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 just the, just the end. Uh, but allow me the memory of the little success. That I did have. Gad, what a reading. What resonance and fire. Oh, Lily, you've still got it, old girl. You've still got it. Bravo, oh, bravo. Stop it, both of <laughs> Go ahead, darling. Anything you want me to do. Just Anything? Yes. Strike while the iron's hot. Uh, Edwin, <clears throat> this job Charlie has for you is, of course, the starring role. Yes. Well, what is it? An afternoon radio program. <laughs> Excuse me, I have a pretzel in the oven. Stay here. It had to be my own wife who said that. It couldn't have been a stranger. A stranger I could strangle, crush, and trample into the ground for suggesting that I, Edwin Montague, go into rage. But Edwin. Silence! Edwin Montague in radio? Never! Not as long as there is breath in my body. Well, you'd better have breath in your body, because unless you get a job, there'll be no food in it. <laughs> you mean our money is gone? Darling, what do you think I've been using for the last eight years to pay for your imported kippers? Your imported cigar bands? 
Now, this radio job. Radio? No, I'll dig ditches first. Edwin, what is this newfound confidence you have in digging ditches? <laughs> the only time you ever held a shovel was in the play Hill of Gold, and then on opening night you used the wrong end. <laughs> oh, Louis, anything but radio. My friends at the Presidium Club will, will, will stone me. The Shalimar Soap Company will pay $200 a week. No one will know it's you. There will be absolutely no publicity. Oh, no, Lily, I can't. Not radio. That's what killed the stage. Nonsense. If I must sell soap, let me at least maintain my pride and do it from door to door. Edwin, are you going to take the job? To be or not to be, that is the problem. That is the question. That is the question. Whether Edwin, Edwin, yes or no? Well... No one will know it's me. Nobody. Of course, you know, if the news leaks out that I'm in radio, I shall automatically commit suicide. Naturally. Well, Edwin? Oh, that this too, too solid flesh would melt and resolve itself. Thaw and resolve itself. Thaw and... Edwin, Edwin, are you going to take the job? To be or not to be. Edwin, it pays $200 a week. The starring role? You play a character called... Uncle Goodheart. Uncle? Death, where is thy sting? Well, Edwin, yes or no? I must bow to the fates. Yes. Edwin, I'm proud of you. I'll call Charlie. Please. And now, if you'll excuse me, I'll retire to my study where I'm going to make the final revision on my memoirs. I am going to strike my own name out of it. Have you the orange juice? Got it. Black coffee? It's all here. You're sure it's eight o'clock? It's five after. You're going to wake him up? Here goes. Edwin, darling... Time to get up and go to the radio station for your first program. Try again. Put some beef in it. <laughs> Edwin, darling, it's time to get up. Help me out, Agnes. Okay, you take one ear, I'll take the other. Let's go. Edwin, darling, it's time to get up. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. He's stirring. What's happened? What is it? Time to get up, darling. It's eight o'clock. Eight o'clock. Eight o'clock? God, I've, I've overslept. No, dear, you don't understand. It's eight o'clock in the morning. <laughs> morning? Well, that's ridiculous. Look, it's, it's dark. The sun shines in the morning. I read that in a book somewhere. <laughs> now, sit up, sweetheart. Agnes, the black coffee. Right. I hope it's still hot. It is here. All right. Now, Edwin, this coffee... Edwin? Edwin? Come on, Agnes. Edwin, Edwin darling, it's time to get up. <laughs> oh, Lily, this is ridiculous. Why, even as a baby, I never got up until noon. <laughs> now just drink this coffee, sweet. Lily, I, I can't be seen at this hour. They'll think I'm a burglar. <laughs> Be at the studio at nine. Now, no more nonsense. Agnes, the brown suit, a white shirt, and brown tie. Coming up. Now, the shoes and socks. Here, honey. Thank you. All right, Edwin, you dress what? Edwin? Once more, Agnes, 
Edwin, darling, it's time to get up. All right, I'm up. And now let's listen to the magnificent Montague at his first radio rehearsal. Hold it, cast. Before I start directing you in the first rehearsal of Uncle Goodhart, Mr. Springer, our head of production, would like to say a few words. Mr. Springer. Thank you, Mr. Zinzer. Ladies and gentlemen, I will be brief. Our sponsor is the Shalimar Soap Company. We go on the air directly opposite our biggest competitor's program, Aunt Agatha. Our program, Uncle Goodhart, must be a weapon. A weapon that will strike so hard, so true, that it'll wipe Aunt Agatha off the air lanes. It's up to you. Carry on. <laughs> okay, Cass, let's rehearse it right uh, from uh, the... Uh, excuse me, but isn't this all a waste of time? A waste of time, Mr. Yes, Montague? before rehearsal, I'd like to take a few weeks to work out the character and sit with the writers and develop... A, a... few weeks to... Mr. Montague, this program goes on the air in half an hour. Half an hour? You mean every week I have... Every week? Five times a week. Five times? Oh, not with me, you don't. What am I, a jukebox? <laughs> Mr. Montague, this is radio. What's you... up? What's up? Any trouble? Uh, nothing, Mr. Springer. This is Mr. Edwin Montague, our Uncle Goodhart. Now, how do you do? I was explaining certain things to Mr. Montague. He's new in radio. What? New in radio? Zinza, for the leading role on a program as important as this, you use an unknown amateur? An unknown amateur? Why, you filthy little... Mr. Montague, this filthy little... I mean, this is Mr. Springer, the producer who... Zinza, I demand... But, Mr. Springer, Mr. Montague is one of the great actors of the legitimate stage. It was a stroke of sheer luck to get him as Uncle Goodhart. Oh? Sorry I offended you, old man. Hmm. Personally, I never go to plays. I always say, give me the movies. You see, the best actors, and they let you smoke in the balcony. <laughs> the movies. My dear sir, it's men with brains like yours that make morons overconfident. Rehearsal. Okay, Cass, let's go. No music, just a dry run. Bartley and Melissa, drive up. Sound. That must be the cottage over there, Bartley. Do you think he's home? Oh, he's got to be. It's our only hope. Oh, look. That must be he coming to meet us. Hello, Uncle Goodhart. Hello, and bless you. Hold it. Mr. Montague, you were off mic. Off mic? Yes. (laughs) Please speak into the microphone. Thank you, but I don't use the microphone. Yes. Let's take it from... Uh, I beg your pardon, Mr. Montague? I said I don't use a microphone. You don't use a microphone? Uh, my good man, this may seem strange to you, but I come from an era of the theater where an actor's voice did not need the aid of these artificial doodads in order to be heard. My voice projection is famous, you know. But, Mr. Never! <laughs> the voice of the 
shaken the very last rose over his carefully New York refuses to be party to this mechanical subterfuge. Mr. Montague, radio... Never, never. Now, 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 what's the trouble? Oh, nothing, Mr. Springer. It's just that Mr. Montague doesn't want to use the microphone. Now, now, if he doesn't want to use the... He doesn't want to use the microphone. <laughs> he doesn't want to use the microphone. I assure you I can be heard without a microphone. How about the people in Denver? Sinzer, I hold you personally responsible. Please, Mr. Montague. Ever since I saw you in Macbeth when I was just a child, you've been my idol. Please trust me when I say in radio you have to speak into a microphone. Mm. Well, very well. <laughs> so you saw me in Macbeth, eh? <laughs> Remember this? I will not yield to kiss the ground before young Malcolm's feet and be baited with a rabble's curse. I throw my warlike shield. Lay on, Macduff! Huh? Wonderful. <laughs> Wonderful, wasn't it, Mr. Springer? Zinzer, remember when I said without a microphone they wouldn't hear him in Denver? Yeah. I think he could do it. <laughs> We'd better get on. Uh, Mr. Montague, we'll take it from where Melissa and Bartley approach you. Page five. Page five. Uh, oh, here it is. <clears throat> uh, that must be the cottage over there, Bartley. Do you think he's home? Oh, he's got to be. It's our only hope. Oh, look. That must be he coming to meet us. Hello, Uncle Goodheart. Hello, and bless you, my children. Why, as I live and breathe, if it isn't Zeke Chickering's little girl, Melissa. Oh, Uncle Goodheart. And mercy be, child, for the way you're blushing. I'll bet this tall, good-looking fellow with you is your beau. Now, fess up. Fess up. <laughs> Please, Mr. Montague. Uh, Yes, I, I should very much like to meet the writer of this epic. I've never seen, I, I've never seen a three-year-old operate a typewriter before. Please, Mister Montague, we're trying to get a timing. Your line, Bartley. I am Bartley Boswell, Uncle Goodhart, Doc Boswell's son. Oh, Uncle Goodhart, something terrible has happened. Bartley and I can't get married. Now come, come, child. We, we must look at the sunny side. Hold it. Mr. Montague, you'll have to speed that up a little. Speed it up. Yeah. <laughs> when you see me twirl my index finger like this, it means speed it up. Your index finger? Uh, Mr. Zinzer, I am an actor, not an orchestra. <laughs> And I refuse, I refuse to be conducted like a three-piece band. I shall read it as I feel it, and you keep your finger out of it. But, but Mr. Montague, the character... Young man, are you telling me, Edwin Montague, how to read a character? All I would... You, you, a radio director. The lowest point a man can sink to and still stay out of jail for vagrancy. <laughs> You dare to do what even the great Velasco never presumed to do? Tell Edwin Montague how to play a character? One minute to our time. Oh, one minute. Mr. Montague, the script is time for a certain speed. You must fit into it. I fit into this anthology of cliches. It must fit into me. <laughs> Zinza, 
Now get rid of this troublemaker. I'm going. 30 seconds. Where's my hat? Mr. Montague, we're going on the air. It's a gray Hamburg with a green feather. Sabotage! That's what it is. Mr. Montague, you can't walk out. I won't. I'll run. Shalimar Soap brings you Uncle Goodheart. He was sent here by Saperoni Soap. He's a dirty spy. Oh, you spied. I'll pull your nose off and let the air out of your head. Quiet, quiet, please. We find gentle, kind, lovable Uncle Goodheart... Seated on the steps of his little vine-covered cottage, waiting to give comfort and counsel to the weary traveler. Listen. Since uh, the show's begun, Mr. Montague, do the character any way you want to. Any way? <laughs> Very well. That must be the cottage over there, Bartley. Do you think he's home? Oh, he's got to be. It's our only hope. Oh, look. That must be he coming to meet us. Hello, Uncle Goodheart. Your cue, Mr. Montague, your cue. Here's your script. Who needs a script? <laughs> Hello, and bless you, my children, while I live and breathe. If it isn't Zeke Chickering's little saber-toothed offspring, Melissa. <laughs> and without a leash. Oh, no. Why, uh, um, Uncle Goodheart, you remember me. Only because you're absolutely impossible to forget. <laughs> and who is this with you, this creature with the pre-shrunk head? <laughs> I, I, I'm Bartley Boswell, Uncle Goodheart, the, the Doc Boswell's son. Oh, Uncle Goodheart, something terrible has happened. Bartley and I can't get married. Well, uh, I don't know which one of you to congratulate first. <laughs> For, uh, still, it, it would have been an extraordinary match. <laughs> get back, Mr. Springer. Let go of me, Sinter. Let me at him. Sounds awful. What else did he say on the program? Then he tells us Bartley and this Melissa there's only one solution for their problem. Get married, buy a little home, move in, and turn on the gas. <laughs> turn on the gas? So help me. At the end of the show, they made an announcement. The ideas expressed on this program are not necessarily those of any human being. <laughs> afraid something's happened to him. It's been an hour since his program was over. Maybe he's in jail. There must be a law against what he did to the air. Agnes, this is no time. Shh, here he comes. Edwin, what happened? Well, it's been over an hour since... Sorry I'm late, dear. I, I had to keep circling and backtracking to shake them off my trail. Well, the phone's been ringing continually. A Mr. Zinzer and a Mr. Springer have been trying to get you. Lily, you didn't tell them where we live. Now, Edwin... I think Springer carries a gun. I saw him reaching for something as he lunged at me when I ran out of the studio. Well, he should have caught you. I was at the bird watcher's office, but Agnes heard the program. The whole thing? The whole thing. Even... 
Even clock, 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 clock. Oh, Lily, after what I did to it, radio can never recover. The theater shall live again. Oh, Agnes, there's someone at the door. Edwin, how could you have done I struck a blow for the theater. I stand here brave and unafraid. It's the Mr. Zinkin and Mr. Springer. Lily, Lily, you, you have to hide me. Uh, show the gentleman in. This way, boys. Check your hardware. Now, look here, Springer, the man who brought you up the elevator is a Golden Gloves champ. I can have him here in two seconds. Mr. Montague, if you wish me to crawl at your feet, command me. Crawl at my feet? Mr. Montague, will you ever forgive my horrible presumption in trying to tell you, the master, how to play a character? What is If you wish me to kiss your boots, command me. Look, if you came up here just to make love to my feet, you're in... <laughs> Mr. Montague, the moment Uncle Goodhart went off the air, the telephone switchboard at the station lit up like a Christmas tree. Listeners all over the country are still calling to tell us at last a real down-to-earth character's been heard on radio. A real... Why, man, you hit the nation with the impact of a howitzer. I did. How could we have been so blind? It was you with your unerring dramatic sense who knew that the public wanted a contrast to the sweet, kindly, sentimental, old homie radio characters. You gave them something new. A salty, down-to-earth, real, living Uncle Goodhart. It's the greatest thing since just plain Bill. <laughs> uh, just plain who? One man telephoned all the way from Council Bluffs, Iowa, just to say, yuck, yuck, yuck. It's sweeping the country. Gad. <laughs> Come, Zinza. We must let Uncle Goodhart rest so he can reach new heights in tomorrow's episode. See you in the morning, Mr. Montague. Silly, they're crazy. They're madmen. People listen to that horrible thing I did and... And they liked it. The magnificent Montague does it again. What have I done? What have I done? Well, whatever you did, dream boy, keep doing it. It means imported kippers from now on. Lily, you've missed the whole point. The whole point? Yes, it just struck me. There I was doing my best to be bad, and I couldn't. I couldn't. What came out was great. Well, of course. Lily, I suspected it for many years, but now at last I know. I am truly magnificent. Tune in next week and find out what happens when the magnificent Montague and radio meet head on. Remember, next week, same time, same station, it's the magnificent Montague starring Monty Woolley, created and written by Nat Hyken. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. Welcome back. You were just listening to The Magnificent Montague. And uh, we're back in the studio here, me and Jake. Uh, McLean, I did kill that rat, by the way, just so you know. Okay, you did? Yep, I can now promise that this studio is rat-free. And I took the boards down off the windows, and it's a nice sunny day outside. So there's that. Oh, okay. Now I can just see the uh, spiderweb cracks in the uh, window pane there. Okay, well... I'll work on that while we listen to the next show. This is, to wrap us up today, it is one of my favorite episodes of Richard Diamond, Private Eye. This is one of my favorite episodes of Richard Diamond, Private Eye, which starred uh, Dick Powell, who was, uh, they would always find an excuse at the end of the episode to have him, uh, to have him sing, because that was, that was his, uh, bread and butter was his singing. 
No, no disrespect to the man, but he reminds me of sort of a, a Paul Anka, sort of low rent Sinatra. Uh, I, I don't know if I put him quite on that level, but uh, he was trying to break into more tough guy roles with this show, and honestly, I think Richard Diamond is one of the most underrated uh, Private Eye shows. It's almost, at times, it's almost a parody of, of Private Eye shows in, in and of itself. Uh, there's, he's always, there's always these little, just these subtle things that you don't quite catch the first time you listen to it, then you go back. I think it was, uh, he was making fun of Sam Spade in one episode or something. I was just like, but anyway, this is one of my favorite episodes. It's called The Misplaced Laundry Case. It is from September the 6th of 1950. Listen while the makers of Rexall drug products and 10,000 independent Rexall family druggists bring you Dick Powell as Richard Diamond, private detective. evening. This is your Rexall family druggist speaking to you for the 10,000 independent druggists who have made the word Rexall part of our own store names and who recommend and sell the 2,000 or more drug products made by the Rexall Drug Company. Like Rexall aspirin, for example. There's no faster acting aspirin made than Rexall aspirin. When swallowed with water, Rexall aspirin is ready to go to work for you even before it reaches your stomach. Quality like that is what we family druggists are talking about when we tell you you can depend on any drug product that bears the name Rexall. Good health to all from Rexall. Now, your Rexall family druggist brings you a transcribed half hour with Richard Diamond, private detective, starring Dick Powell. No, no, no. Oh. Yeah? Well, what's the matter with you? Oh, hello, Helen. Nothing has gone right all day. I called your office, but you left an hour ago. What took you so long getting home? Well, I had to stop by the laundry. Didn't have any clean shirts. Are you forgetting we're supposed to be at my mother's at seven? No, honey, I'm not forgetting. What time is it now? A little after six. No, nuts. What in the world's wrong? Well... First of all, I haven't seen anything that looks like a client for two weeks. That's unusual. I only got two hours sleep last night. You're complaining. Oh, no, 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 honey. Then what is it? Well, that stupid laundry gave me the wrong bundle. I can't go over to your mother's with my bare chest hanging out. Well, can't you go back and get the right bundle? Well, it closes at six. Oh, be practical. It was the laundry's fault, so use one of the shirts out of the wrong bundle. They'll have it clean. No, what if it doesn't fit? Make it fit. Now, I won't have you being late again. Well, well, all right, all right. I'll see you at seven. I still love you. Then tell your mother not to suggest Monopoly again. I have to get some sleep tonight. The shirt wasn't bad. A little short in the arms, but with my charm bracelet, no one would notice. I shaved, cussed a little, showered, cussed some more. Really let loose with some choice ones while I got dressed and kept it up all the way over to Helen's. She walked out in the green number that plunged so far it could have been arrested for attempted suicide. Sure cure for cussing. Like it? The guy who went off the Golden Gate didn't have half the drop. Oh, stop perspiring and come on. 
Helen's mother lived in a 40-room vault on Long Island. We had a wonderful dinner. Soup, salad, pheasant on the glass. The only thing missing was cracked crab. Until Helen's mother suggested Monopoly, then I nearly shelled her and ducked her in the mustard. About one o'clock, my eyes felt like two three-minute eggs lost in a sand pile, so I gave up and went to sleep right in the middle of a tricky trade for my railroad. Helen apologized, looked at me hatefully when I suggested a piggyback ride to the car, and by two o'clock, she dropped me in front of my flat on 53rd. You were horrible. Oh, well, how did I know your mother had the electric company, too? Oh, I'll talk to you tomorrow. All right. Kiss? You can't even keep your eyes open. This is going to stop me. I do my best work with my eyes closed. No. All right. Honey, are you growing a beard? That's my mink coat. Oh. Night. Good night. some laundry that belongs to you. Well, that's nice. Nothing like getting your laundry at two o'clock in the morning. You got mine. We'll stop around about noon tomorrow and we'll swap. I'd like it now, friend. I gotta leave town. Oh, look, I'm a little tired, friend. I want the laundry. Yeah, well, you're dealing with a bad customer. I just traded Pennsylvania Avenue for one lousy railroad. What? Come back tomorrow, friend, and I'll give you your laundry and a detailed explanation. I want the laundry now. Now, look. You look. Well, if anything could have opened my little old sleepy blue eyes, it's that lovely gun. You look divine together. Now let's go up and get the laundry. What's the matter? You got the only long underwear with sequins? Move. And I moved. Up to my little flat with the laundry man sticking close enough so I wouldn't forget the big gun on his hot little hand. We went in and traded bundles. You opened it, huh? Well, what did you want me to do? Put it on a table and offer up prayers? You're a little too wise for your own good, but... I got what I wanted. No hard feelings. Yeah, well, I hope your socks fall down. You just stay put until I'm out of the building. Thanks, friend. Well, any other time, I might have done something ridiculous, like chasing the guy or calling Walt up and complaining about the inadequacy of the old police department. But this wasn't any other time. It was after two in the morning, and I was tired. Sure, it was unusual to trade laundry at that hour, but I was in no condition to try and figure it out. So I brushed my teeth, left my clothes in a neat pile in the corner, and stumbled into bed. Oh, no, no, I'll never get any sleep. I'm coming, I'm coming. Yeah? Mr. Diamond? Yeah, who is it? This is Mr. Green, Mr. Diamond. Well, thanks for calling, Mr. Green. Good night. Oh, wait, wait, please wait, Mr. Diamond. This is Mr. Green, the man who owns the Blue Bell Laundry. Well, how's business? Can you come over to my apartment right away? Why? Someone's going to try and kill me. What time is it? Three o'clock. Look, can't you hide in a closet or something until noon? I tell you, someone's going to kill me. Well, get in the closet and close the door. If anyone opens it, take a bite out of the nearest coat and head for the closest bright light. This is serious, Mr. Diamond. I haven't got much time. Well, if you don't think you can look like a moth, maybe I'd better drop around. What's your address? Savoy Arms, Apartment C. And hurry, I'm desperate. Well, if you're just half as desperate as I am sleepy, you're really in trouble. I'll be right over. (laughs) 
I stumbled back into my clothes and downstairs and a quick walk down to Park where I could grab a cab. Then ten minutes later, I was knocking at the door of apartment C. No answer. I was about to try the door when it opened. Uh, Mr. Green? You're too late. Mr. Green. He opened the door all right, but that was as far as he got. He just slid down and stretched out on his stomach, head turned sideways, thick glasses pushed up at an angle, his weak eyes trying hard to see everything there was to see before they closed for good. I kneeled down beside him. Jones. Wrong laundry number. Jones. Green. Green. Well, everybody dies. He'd been shot just under the heart from the back. A warm breeze made me turn and look out the open window on the far side of the room leading out to a fire escape. I went over and looked out. Nothing. But it was a good bet that the killer had shot Green from there. I put in a call to Walt, and in ten minutes he was standing over Green. And this is the guy who owns the laundry and gave you the wrong bundle. That's right. How do you always get mixed up in things like this? Well, it's a talent. Did he say who he thought was after him? Oh, he just told me that he was in fear of his life. Now, what about the guy who shoved the gun in your face and took away the bundle of laundry? Oh, about my size. Had a hat on, light gray suit, brown eyes, heavy eyebrows, high cheekbones, very sharp features. Well, let's go down and run through the gallery, see if we can get an identification. Okay. But first, let's take a run down to the Blue Bell Laundry. Might be a good idea to find out what this is all about. <laughs> Here it is, Lieutenant. Blue Bell Laundry. Oh, he read the sign. Mm. If a guy with fangs and a long black cape answers, drive a stake through his heart. Or shoot him with a silver bullet. You keep your suggestions to yourself, Sergeant, or I'll open this door with your head. Uh, These keys are in better shape. I tell you, we can't use them. If no one answers, then we got to get a search warrant. Why? Because that's the law. What is? That we got to get a warrant to search the laundry. Well, what do you want to search the laundry for? What do I want to search it for? Because a man's just been killed. Okay, so what? What's that got to do with the laundry? The guy who was killed was the guy who owned the laundry. You told me yourself it had something to do with getting the bundles mixed up and that guy who stuck you up tonight. Okay, but you can't just go busting into a laundry just because of a stupid little old hunch. What do you mean, stupid? You could be wrong, you know. Just because you think you might solve this case, that's no reason for you to go busting into a laundry. Well, why not? The answer to this whole thing might just be in that laundry. Well, you've certainly been right in the past. No, not always. Well, most of the time, Wall. Well, just lucky. Well, if you think it's best, here are the keys. You understand, right? Oh, sure, sure, Wall. Lieutenant. Yeah? Oh, nothing. You stay out here, Sergeant. Well, we're in. I hope the commissioner doesn't hear about it. About what? Breaking and entering. Breaking up. What? Why, you... You... Fiend? Yes. Walt hopped around for a while until he ran out of steam, and then we went to work and took the laundry apart. The way it stacked up, I had gotten the wrong bundle of laundry. The guy who'd stuck me up in two in the morning had gotten mine. So the bundle that I'd gotten by mistake figured to be pretty important. There must have been something else in there besides clean shirts. So, Green, the owner, made a mistake. Oh, but that's kind of hard to do, Walt. You've got to have a ticket to get your laundry. Ticket with a number on it? Oh, sure. It should correspond to the numbers on those bins. Hey, wait a minute, wait yeah. a minute. 
Before Green died, he said something about a wrong number and a name. What name? Uh, 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 Jones. Jones. Now, look, when I brought my laundry in, Green wrote my name and number down in a book. Let's see if we can find that book. Walt took one side of the shop and I took the other. Inside of ten minutes, we had the book. We turned to the page with deliveries dated for the day before and found my name. Now, here it is. Richard Diamond. Uh-huh. Laundry number 99. That's right. That was the number on the ticket I gave him. Then Green didn't make a mistake. But he'd have to to give you the wrong bundle. He couldn't get mixed up with the bins, Mark. Walt, turn that book around. Turn it around? Upside down. Huh. Now, if that number was on a ticket and I handed it to you upside down... 66. Yeah. Who's listed under 66? See, it's not on this page. Uh, here. Well, I'll pick... John Jones. No address. John Jones. Green had said Jones before he died. Jones had the laundry ticket marked 66. Green had evidently looked at my ticket upside down and given me Jones's bundle. Green couldn't have known anything important was in that bundle or he wouldn't have made the mistake. And then why was he killed? Doesn't figure. Well, if he was just a go-between, it does. He didn't put the important something in the bundle. Or he would have just held the bundle until Jones arrived and then given it to him. Then the bundle came wrapped with the something in it. Now, now look, Walt. You know how these small places work. They, they send their stuff out to a large laundry and cleaning plant. Yeah, but which one? Hey. Yeah, I got a shirt on it from that wrong bundle. I bet it's got a laundry mark. Should be on the collar. Let's see. Well, let's not strangle me, huh? Let me unbutton a few buttons. Scott. Go ahead, Grabby. Let's see. Yeah, there's some writing on the collar. Read it out, and I'll write it down. Uh, Eight, six, A, four, five, L. What kind of a laundry number is that? Find out, and you might have the guy who slipped something in that bundle and was responsible for Green's death. We went through the rest of the place, but found no evidence to show us what big plant Green sent his laundry to. I bowed out as gracefully as possible and went home to get some sleep. It was 4 a.m. when I stumbled into my flat with just one thought in mind. Sleep. And I got it in a hurry. Oh. Mm-hmm. Rick, come on now. Snap out of it. No. Mm-hmm. Come on, come on. Sit up. No, leave me alone. Somebody sapped you. No, I don't care if you split my head in sections. I went to sleep, didn't I? What happened to your shirt? My shirt? All right. Oh. Oh, so that's it. What's it? The shirt. That's what the guy was really after. Suppose it was Jones? Well, sure it was. Walt, when he, when he traded bundles with me, he didn't have any way of knowing that I'd taken a shirt out of it. That shirt was what made that bundle important. Those numbers on the collar. I checked. They weren't a laundry mark. Uh, you still got them? Yeah. Well, they sure mean something. Let's see if we can figure out just what. I gave Walt a pencil and paper, and we put our two brilliant minds to work trying to figure out the numbers that had been written on the collar of the shirt. Just numbers with two letters, A and L. Easy problem for two brilliant students of criminology. I got it. You have? Let's take the numbers down to the decoding department. Oh, that's what I like. Perseverance, a sharp mind, and nothing's too tough for us. (laughs) 
come on, come on, Art. You've been working on those numbers for nearly five minutes. Well, I've been sick. Could this be a code for some kind of a pickup? Ah, guess it could be. Well, let's use times and dates. First number is eight. No, today's the eighth day. Well, the letter A could stand for AM. Six A, six AM. Could eighty-eight, six AM. And 46L could be the where. Hmm, 46th in any street beginning with L. Out of the way corner. 46th in Lexington, and that's not out of the way. Oh, I'm sure glad you broke that code, Walt. Ah, experience and a little common sense. Come on, you and me are going over to 46th in Lexington. You and I, Walt. I could stand for idiot. That's another <laughs> code, Arch. Fourth letter in Levinson. Oh, come on, we haven't got all morning. <laughs> You're listening to Richard Diamond, Private Detective, brought to you by the makers of Rexall drug products and your Rexall family druggist. And here he is. Every woman will tell you that the ideal home antiseptic is one that will serve as a mouthwash, gargle, and breath deodorant, all with equal effectiveness. And that's exactly what Rexall MI-31 does. Well, now how did you know that? Because I read all about it in your big ad in this week's issue of Life. Say, isn't that a good ad? A whole page crammed full of top-quality Rexall products. Some of them at special bargain prices, good all this month. And every one of them just as reliable as Rexall MI-31, America's popular all-round mouthwash. What's more, Rexall gives you a full pint of MI-31 at the same price as other leading brands of smaller quantity. That's why I've learned to watch for your ads. I learn all about these wonderful money-saving values. And they always remind me of so many things I need, too. Then maybe I'd better tell our listeners that this same full-page ad is appearing in current issues of Collier's, Look, Saturday Evening Post, and Country Gentleman. Check it carefully. And remember, you can depend on any drug product that bears the name Rexall. And now back to tonight's adventure with Richard Diamond, Private Detective, starring Dick Powell. Yeah, this is a good spot. No one on the corner of 46th and Lexington yet. What time is it? Uh, five minutes to six. Yeah, well, I hope we figure this out right. Car 86, car 86. Yeah, that's us. Car 86, Levinson, go ahead. Sergeant Otis wants to speak with you, Lieutenant. Oh. Go ahead. Lieutenant, I checked and found out where the Bluebell Laundry sends its cleaning. Two companies, Monarch and the Superior Cleaning and Dying Works. Uh, Mr. Ralph Collins owns Monarch and... Uh, Mr. Arthur Levinon's superior. Find out the addresses of the plants and the home addresses of the owners, and then put a stake out at the homes of the owners. Don't pick them up, but stop them if they're trying to leave. Wilco, Roger, and out. Oh, I'm surprised he didn't get tired of Roger and use McGillicuddy just to be different. Hey, Walt, there's our boy. Huh, Jones? Yeah, across the street on the corner. Same guy who got the bundle from me. Let's go. No one else yet. He's waiting for something. It's about two minutes to six. Yeah. Hey, car pulling up. Jones is going over to it. Get going. Guy in the car gave Jones a package. They spotted us. You get the car, I'll take Jones. Stop! Stop that car! Stop, Jones! Jones! Okay. Car got away, but I put some bullet holes in it. Drop the gun, Jones. Okay. 
Okay, I'm, I'm hurt bad. Don't, don't shoot again. Get me an ambulance, will you? Walt, he's got another bundle with him. I'll get back to the car and get the wagon. I, I think he got me the stump. You want to talk? Yeah, yeah, okay. What's in the bundle you got from the car? Junk. A hundred thousand in morphine. How did Green figure? Oh, just a go-between. He worked for the big boy. Took our money. Sent it in with an order for the stuff. Instructions in the collar of one of the shirts. Yeah. You kill Green? Yeah. Who's the big boy? Jones. Jones. The wagon's on its way. Uh, he's dead. What was he picking up? Narcotics. Well, Walt, we know the code was put in the laundry bundles at one of the cleaning works. Well, better bother. They've been checked. Yeah, and you can never tell what else might turn up. We waited until the wagon pulled up and carted Jones off, then we headed across town toward the first of two stops, the Superior Cleaning and Dyeing Works. 7.30 when we pulled up in front and let ourselves in with one of my pass keys. This is the only one we can check quietly. They open at 8, don't they? Yeah. Got a half an hour to make a noose for a pretty big operator. So we went to work on the Superior Laundry. Guys like Jones were caught every day, but the big boys, the ones who dished out the stuff from the top, the big syndicate operators were tough to catch. And here was a chance to catch one. We got into the office and found the order books. Jones appeared in nearly every one. This was the place where Green had sent Jones's laundry. But it still doesn't prove enough. We've got to prove that the code was slipped in the bundle from this plant. Then we've got to find the guy who does it. Well, come on. We've got to work fast. This joint opens up in a half an hour. Hey, Walt, hold it. Car pull up outside. Yeah. I can see it out of the window. Rick, it's the same car that passed the junk to Jones. The one I put the bullets in. Hey, he's coming in. He's... He's coming up here. Get in the other room. Yeah, leave the door open. Hello, Mr. Levin. Yeah, hey, Charlie. Yeah, there was some trouble. Cops were waiting. Yeah. I'm down at the place. Uh, I got away clean. Uh, Jones had the bundle, I'm, I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, I'll blow. Let's take him. Hey! Hold it! He's making a break! Stop! Not scared, He's got a gun! Blow him up! Well, he's had it. Yeah. Know him? Charlie Asher. Narcotics record. Yeah, this shirt turned into a mess. Yeah. Let's go see Mr. Arthur Levin of Superior Cleaning and find out what kind of cleaning works he's been running. Hi, Lieutenant. You got the whole place surrounded. Levin hasn't tried to leave. He's been out of the house once, went to the garage. Have anything with him? Well, now, when he came out, went in with a big box. All right, let's take him. You better get out of sight, Otis. You'll see that uniform and get jumpy. Get down there in the end of the porch. All right. Yes? Police, Mr. Levin, we'd like to talk to you. Oh, well, uh, come in. Thank you. I was just going to my office. Where is your office, Mr. Levin? I own the Superior Cleaning and Dye Works. You do laundry for Mr. Green's Blue Bell Laundry? I do work for a lot of laundries. I believe that Mr. Green happens to be one of them. You yeah. know a man named Jones? 
I know more than one Jones. How about a man named Charlie Usher? Charlie? No. No, I don't know him. He called you 20 minutes ago. No, he didn't call me. You're very much mistaken. Now, would you mind telling me what this is all about? How many workers do you have at Superior, Mr. Levin? About 40. Any of them have police records? No, not to my knowledge. And you don't know Charlie Usher? No. No, I told you, I do not know him. Well, he had a key to the front door of your laundry. He used your office phone. I can't help that. He called a Mr. Levin. But I have never talked with a man named Charlie Usher. I, I what swear What was in that I... box you brought in from the garage? Box? Books. Books. I brought some books in. Where are the books, Mr. Levin? Well, I already... I put them in the shelves in the library. What did you do with the box? I, I, I burned it. Uh, I, I don't like dirty boxes lying around the house. You went outside and burned it? Yes, yes, in the incinerator. My men said you only came out of the house once, Mr. Levin. Then your men are mistaken. I went out twice, once to get the box, uh, the books, and the second time to burn the box. Look, what right have you got to hide outside my house and watch it like a bunch of burglars? I know my rights. I want to call my lawyer. Oh, sure, sure, Mr. Levin. You go right ahead and call your lawyer. In the meantime, we'll see if anything was burned in the incinerator. It would be burned out by now. That was uh, 20 minutes ago. About the time Charlie Usher called He you. did not call me. I don't even know him. Well, even if you did burn the box 20 minutes ago, Mr. Levin, there'd still be some smoking ashes. And if it wasn't burned in the incinerator, Mr. Levin, we'll take this house apart piece by piece until we find it. I'll go take a look. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Uh, yes, Mr. Look, Levin. Look, I'm, I'm not sure I, I burned the box. Then you didn't go outside the second I, time? I, I don't know. I, I don't remember. I, I'm all mixed up. Look, you've got to give me time to think. Well, if you didn't go out the second time, the box is still in the house. Look, please, please do this. Give me time. What's me... in the box, Mr. Levin? Books, I told you. Books. Where is it? I don't know. Leave me alone now. Now, will you leave me alone? I know my rights. Start taking the house apart. No, 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 please. Where's the box? Please. The box, Mr. Levin, the box. Yeah, where's the box? Uh, under the sink. Where under the sink? There's a sliding paddle under the kitchen sink. Narcotics, Mr. Levin? Yes. Yes. You marked the shirt collars and sent Charlie Usher to deliver the stuff. That's right. I had ten laundries working for me. Green was one of them. Uh, Ruined. Oh, relax, Mr. Levin. You can be happy about one thing. Jones and Usher didn't cooperate like you did. And they're both dead. Again, here's your Rexall family druggist. If you're often troubled with acid stomach, or if you're looking for a gentle, non-irritating way to achieve regularity, try Rexall Milk of Magnesia. Pure, mild, creamy, smooth, and with no unpleasant earthy taste. Rexall Milk of Magnesia is justly popular. Buy the economy size, quart bottle. It costs only 69 cents at Rexall drugstores everywhere. And remember, you can depend on any drug product that bears the name Rexall. Good health to all from Rexall. Richard Diamond, Private Detective, stars Dick Powell in the title role and is written by Blake Edwards with music composed and conducted by Frank Worth. Featured in tonight's cast were Ted DeCorsia, Wilms Herbert, Clayton Post, Sidney Miller, Virginia Gregg, and Stacey Harris. 
Richard Diamond, Private Detective, was transcribed in Hollywood by Jaime Del Valle. This is Bill Foreman inviting you to be with us next Wednesday at this time when we will again bring you Dick Powell as Richard Diamond, Private Detective. Hiya, beautiful. Get lost, Bristlepuss. You need a shave. But I have shaved. What else do you want me to do? Silly boy, she wants you to go stag. Go stag? But why? Because stag is Rexall's exclusive line of men's good grooming aids, like stag brushless shave cream. No fuss, no massage, just smooth it on and presto, you get a clean, close shave. Your face stays smooth and whiskerless all day long. I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll go stag. That's it. Join the stag line now at Rexall drugstores everywhere. Yes, to make girls care. Go stag. Three chimes mean good times on NBC. There's entertainment in store for you every Wednesday night on NBC. In addition to the action-packed adventures of Richard Diamond, beginning next Wednesday, listen to Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Coleman returning over most of these stations with their delightful series, The Halls of Ivy. In four weeks, laugh with Groucho Marx and you bet your life on NBC. All right, that was Richard Diamond in the Misplaced Laundry Case from 1950. Um, one note, they did make a Richard Diamond TV show in the late 50s. I don't think it was very good, mainly because it oh. wasn't anything like the radio show. It was a complete... I don't know why they made it Richard Diamond. They should have just renamed... I don't know why. It's just It had nothing to do with Richard... I, it just annoys me, McLean. I'm sorry. There were, there were many creative decisions being made during this time. And, um, you know, finding your footing... Getting an idea for what the public wants. It was a, it was a difficult, difficult thing to do. Now, Jake, I am just now realizing that this window was actually boarded up with a building condemned sign. So, uh, do we want to do anything about that, or? That was probably in the uh, fine print of the rental agreement. I didn't really look at that too closely. Okay, I think as long as like we don't sleep here, we should be okay legally speaking. Okie doke. Well, I will wrap us up and we can lock up and get out of here for the afternoon then. We'll get this fixed up by next week. It'll be, it'll be fine. Sorry, I didn't mean to sound cynical. This has been Yesterday Today, bringing you the best of yesterday's sounds. I'm Jake. This was McLean. Still is McLean. He has not stopped, not stopped being McLean. As far as I'm aware. Yes, sirree, Bob. All right. Well, we will see you around these parts next week. Uh, Take care, folks. No, watch out for that. Watch out for that exposed wiring there, but yeah, yeah.